thank you for calling us your children. And we worship you today. We give you our attention. We are here to be in your presence. We love you. You are so good. Amen. Amen. It's good to be in God's house this morning. You may be seated. Oh man, I love Sundays. I love waking up on Sundays, getting ready and coming to church. There's no place that I would rather be. And we hope and we pray that you feel the same way. You go to bed on Saturday night and you're like, I'm pumped for church in the morning. There's just no better place to be. And I'm so excited to, to be here and to, to share this message that God's given me this morning. And, you know, it is just such a privilege and an honor to be a part of what God is doing here at Generation Church. It's just amazing, isn't it? These last few weeks, we have been in the series, Jesus Drops the Mic. And I don't know about you, but... I have been challenged by these sermons the last few weeks and just these drop the mic moments that are in the scriptures that are just challenging and they stretch us and our pastor has been so uh, honest with what the Bible says and it's so amazing to come to church and to grow and to change and today we are continuing this drop the mic series and the, and the drop the mic statements are hard challenging statements that Jesus made during his time here on earth. And some of these statements, they're just, they're hard to understand. You know, the Bible was not written in English originally, so sometimes the words, um, they don't really translate to something that is just easy for us to understand. They, have, they were written in a different language, so the words kind of have a slightly different meaning. So we read them and we're like, hmm, I'm not sure what that's, what that's trying to say. Or some of the drop-the-mic moments are, they're just simply hard to put into practice in our lives. And... For us today, our passage of scripture is both. Yay! It's hard to understand and it's hard to put into practice. You know, as believers, we believe that the entire Bible is the word of God. Yes? The entire Bible, which means we can't pick and choose the scriptures that we agree with and the scriptures that we want to follow. It's really really easy to just grab onto those feel-good scriptures. You know, the ones that you read them and you're just like, mm, God is so good. You know, the ones that talk about how much God loves us and the ones that talk about how God created us and the ones that talked about how he, he knew us before we were created and how he cares about us and how he'll take care of us and how he provides for us. Mm. Those are good scriptures. I could read those all day. Put those on my coffee cup. I'll wear the t-shirt. Put it on the top of my journal. Those are my jam. I could read those all day. But we tend to like the scriptures in the Bible that talk about how God feels about us. But when they transfer into how we're supposed to feel about others, more often it's like a, no thanks, I'll pass kind of attitude. We just kind of skip over those. If we're not careful, we can approach the Bible like it's a menu. 
And we can pick and choose the scriptures that we want. I'll take a little bit of this, hold that. You know, it's like, um, yeah, hi, I'll take an order of God's love with a side of forgiveness. Oh, an extra, extra grace. But please um, hold the correction and uh, none of that tithing stuff. No, I don't, I don't like that. That generosity stuff, no thanks. I don't want any of that. This kind of thinking can easily lead us to a shallow, fruitless, surface-level Christian life. But God desires so much more for us. In John 10.10, it says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, we receive life the moment we believe in Jesus. The moment we give Jesus our heart, we receive life. But life to the full comes when we begin to grow in that relationship, when we begin to mature in our relationship with Jesus. Well, how do we do that? How do we grow in our relationship with God? We have to read, listen, and apply the drop the mic moments in our life. We can't skip over them. We can't leave those out. And I'm going to be real. Can I be real with you today? Our passage of scripture today, it's one of my least favorites in the whole Bible. It is. It's true. It's a thing. Okay? It's one of my least favorites. Why? Because it's so incredibly challenging to me. I wish we could just skip over it. Because I read it and I'm like, that's totally unreasonable. Matthew 5, 48. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I'm sure the people listening to Jesus' sermon here had the same response as I do when I read this. Like, say what, Jesus? Uh, yeah, that can't, I, did I hear you right? That, that, that can't be what you meant, right? Like that was just, it wasn't written down correctly, right? You must be perfect? I don't think so. If you're taking notes, the title of my sermon today is Perfect Imperfection. Perfect Imperfection. Let's pray. God, we are here to learn more about you. Jesus, speak to our hearts. Open up our hearts. Challenge us today. We love you. Amen. Now, honestly, this idea of being perfect is something that I really struggle with. I always have. I am your typical firstborn people pleasing whatever you want I will be kind of person. That's just how I am. When I was little, if my dad even slightly looked at me with a sense of disapproval. I lost it for like three days. I couldn't handle it. Even when I was little, I had this pressure to be perfect. And in my teenage years, I carried this and it even kept me from trying things in life. Like, oh, that looks fun, but I won't be good at it. So no, I'm not even going to try because then if I don't try, then no one will know I'm not perfect. And I've carried it into my adult life as well. Because in our world today, there is a constant pressure to be perfect. Constant. Especially for us ladies. Am I right? Come on, ladies. Am I right? We have this pressure to be the perfect wife. 
You know, the wife that works full time, keeps up with the laundry, makes delicious meals, and always has a clean house. Always. I was on Pinterest the other day, and I was scrolling through. I have a love-hate relationship with Pinterest, okay? And I was scrolling through Pinterest, and I saw this article, okay? This is real life. It said, how to have a clean house every day. What? Every day? My response was like, what alternate universe does that lady live in, and how do I get there? If I would have written that article, how to have a clean house every day, step one, don't actually live there. That's the only way that I could think to have a clean house every day. Or the pressure to be the perfect mom. You know, those moms. They wake up their children. Honey, it's time to wake up. It's a beautiful day. Get them ready for school while you're making Mickey Mouse pancakes with homemade whipped cream. Yeah. And then you send them off to school with their little lunchbox with their homemade organic peanut butter and jelly sandwich with love notes inside your lunchbox. Yeah, you know those moms, the ones that have this perfect, peaceful life in this perfect, peaceful morning situation, and they even have time to take pictures of it and blog about it. (laughs) And normal humans are going, I can't measure up to that. Why? Because it's not reality. It's not reality. We can take pictures of a perfect moment, these Mickey Mouse pancakes, but they don't show you the mess around the picture, right? I learned this very early on in our marriage, that I was not going to be the perfect wife because I went into marriage thinking, I'm going to be awesome at this. I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to be perfect because of the standards that I have for myself. So we were, you know, doing life, and I woke up one morning, and I was going to make dinner before I went to work, so I made this beef vegetable stew in the crock pot, okay? And I was, I was really proud of myself because I don't know if you've realized this about Pastor Ryan, but he likes to eat, okay? So I had this, like, enormous pressure to always make good dinners, And so I woke up, I made this stew, and the last ingredient on the list was like half a tablespoon of Splenda or something. It was Splenda, half a tablespoon, okay? I'm thinking, I don't have Splenda. And then it dawns on me, I do have Splenda in these little tiny packets next to my coffee pot. Okay, so I tear them open. I fill half a tablespoon or whatever it was of Splenda, and then I put it in the crock pot, stir it all up, turn it on, leave my house, go to work, come home, proud of myself. I made dinner. I woke up early to make you dinner. I was proud of myself. So I set the table, I get the bowls out, put it in the soup, put the soup in it, you know, and I do this really weird thing, I still do this today, where I'll sit down across from Ryan at dinner, and I just stare at him until he takes the first bite, like, (laughs) do do you like it? I still do it, it's true, it's weird, I know it's weird, but it's true, and he has this 
look on his face. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. So I taste it, and I go, this is the most disgusting soup that there has ever been created because it was a sweet beef stew, okay? Now that is gross because I didn't know this at the time, learned it the hard way that Splenda packets are concentrated. So it was way more than what the recipe actually called for. But my nice, loving husband is across the table and goes, it's good. And I'm thinking, I have taste buds too. This is not good. So I take another bite. I'm thinking maybe I just got like a bad bite. I don't know. I was hopeful. Okay, so I got another bite and I burst into tears. I think I cried for like an hour and a half. And I'm thinking like, Now, looking back, I'm like, how ridiculous is that? It's not like that was the only meal we could ever eat again for our whole entire lives. It was one dinner. One. But I had this unrealistic expectation of myself. I learned about four days into our marriage that I'm not going to be the perfect wife. Why? Because perfect doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. We can try and try and try, but we are never going to be perfect. So if perfect doesn't exist, why then is Jesus telling us to be perfect? At first glance, this doesn't even seem to line up with other scriptures in the Bible. My younger self didn't understand this scripture, so instead of trying to understand it, trying to figure it out, I just skipped over it, pretended like it wasn't there, and I walked through life with an unrealistic pressure of perfectionism. But thankfully, when we we actually study this scripture, it says the exact opposite of what it seems at first glance. The exact opposite. See, Jesus said perfect. You must be perfect. But when we take that word perfect out of the sentence and we study what it truly means, what the word Jesus said in the original language, he meant perfect. You must be whole. You must be complete, which is totally different than our thinking. Because in our human thinking, we put like the word perfectionism in that sentence. We we put our own meaning in this sentence. And perfectionism is a mindset that regards anything short of perfection as unacceptable. It's unacceptable, which is actually ridiculous. We know we can't be perfect. Scripture even says we can't be perfect. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, everyone. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short. We can't measure up. What does that mean? We're never going to be perfect. But God loves us too much for that to be the end of the story, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him is the key phrase here, guys. In him. 
Only through Jesus can we meet God's standards. Only through Jesus can we become righteous. Only through Jesus can we be made whole and complete. Not through anything we can do, but only through the power of what Jesus did for us on the cross can we begin to pursue godly completion. And when we focus on perfectionism, we're focusing on the wrong thing. Because when we focus on perfectionism, we're focusing on our own shortcomings. We're focusing on our own mistakes. We're focusing on what we think is unacceptable. What's the problem with that? The focus is on us. The focus is on me. But when we focus on perfect, we're forced to change our focus to the only one who is perfect, Jesus. We are not perfect, and we never will be. And Jesus calls us from the emptiness of self-made perfection to the wholeness of God-given completion. The pursuit of perfection leads to emptiness every time. We cannot be perfect but we are complete in his perfection. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, you can walk in the freedom of his completion. But in order to understand what Jesus is really saying here in Matthew 5, 48, we have to back up a few verses because we want to read this in context, right? We can't just pick out a scripture and not figure out what was happening around it when Jesus said it, okay? So we're going to go back to Matthew 5, 43. And Jesus said this, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, I already don't like where this is going. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of my sermon, okay? I like the passages of Scripture that talk about how God feels about us. Not how I'm supposed to feel about others. I read this and I'm like, love my enemies? What? No thanks. That sounds like no fun, I like when I understand that Jesus died on the cross for me so that I can be forgiven and enter into a relationship with the perfect God, which makes me complete. I don't, however, like when I read this entire passage of Scripture and discover that through this relationship with God comes responsibility. This is where the full life living comes into play. This Christian life is not a take, take, take relationship from us, from God to us, always taking. It's a take, transform, and then give. Take, transform, and then give. 
So now I'm supposed to strive to love like God and love my enemies. And my first response is, did I sign up for this? Because that sounds like something I do not want to do. But we did. Because in John 13, 35, it says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, love is the distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Jesus. It's what makes us different from the world. It's what, it's what makes us different from everyone else is our love. So let's go back to verse 43 here, and it says, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know what's really funny about this? Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say to hate your enemy. So Jesus was not correcting the Old Testament as it appears on first reading. He was correcting the misinterpretation of it. To me, and it's really easy to understand how this kind of transformed over time, right? It does say love your neighbor. And in our human response, it's like, okay, love my neighbor, hate my enemy. It's like the easy go-to response. Because loving your enemy seems absolutely unreasonable and ridiculous in our own human thought and ability. But Jesus is very clear. Love your enemies. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just tell us to love our enemies because this seems overwhelming and actually impossible. So he tells us how and why we are to love our enemies. That Jesus, he's tricky. He's never going to let us off the hook. So we're supposed to love our enemies. But in order to do this, we have to know who our enemies are. And as followers of Jesus, we are living in this whole, complete, transformed life, right? And this transformed life stirs us to, to love and live with a significantly greater love towards who? A greater love towards who? It tells us right here, those who persecute us. And in a different version of this same passage, it says, those who hurt us. Makes it feel a little bit more personal, doesn't it? Those who hurt us. So I think the simple definition of enemy is those we should not love. Our enemy is those we should not love. Those who hurt us. Those who betray us. Those who stab us in the back. Those who break our trust. And we're not going to walk through this life without experiencing hurt from people. Why? Because nobody's perfect. And we can have these encounters, these hurtful, broken relationships from every area in our life. Family. I've been hurt by people in my family, and I'm sure you have been too, whether they meant it or not. Church family can sometimes hurt us, break our trust. Why? Nobody's perfect. So even people that come here, we're just all a bunch of messed up people trying to figure out life and be like Jesus. Strangers sometimes can hurt you. Friends, 
You call them friends, and then three days later, they're stabbing you in your back, and you're like, I thought we were friends. People will hurt us. It will happen. So what are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to love them? It seems impossible. So Jesus tells us how. Pray for them. Pray for them. This is the exact opposite of what I want to do. In my own strength, my first response is not praying for people when they hurt me. It's actually wanting to yell at them or plot my revenge. Okay, you hurt me. Now watch how I'm going to hurt you. And if you really hurt me, my first response might be to punch you in the face. Just in my human sinfulness. I can't be the only one, right? (laughs) Praying for your enemies is difficult. It's hard, but it's necessary. Jesus wouldn't tell us to do it if it wasn't. Why is it hard to pray for your enemies? Why? I think one of the reasons why it's hard is it still hurts and I'm mad. When someone hurts you, when someone betrays you, obviously your first response is anger. I'm mad. You hurt me. I don't want to pray for you. I think another reason why we don't want to pray for our enemies is we just don't want to think about them. Sometimes it's easy, it seems easier just to push that person out, say, I'm done with you, and move on. But then we're on Facebook at night and we're scrolling through our news feed and their, their name pops up and our first response is to throw our phone against the wall. Little hint, that means you're bitter towards that person, okay? And you need to pray for them. Another reason why we don't want to pray for people who hurt us is we don't want to have a relationship with them. And I think this is uh, something that can be a little bit confusing, okay? Just because you love your enemies, you love someone who hurts you, does not necessarily mean that you have to have a relationship with them again. It does not always lead to reconciliation. And that's okay. Another reason why it's hard to pray for our enemies is I don't want to think about what I might have done wrong. In some situations where someone has hurt you, you are 100% innocent. And that is true. In an abuse situation or something like that, you are 100% innocent. But if it's a relationship tiff, if there's hurt between a relationship, I would say 99.9% of the time, you probably did something wrong along the way. And it's just easier to not pray about it because then we don't have to deal with our own sin. It's hard difficult to pray for our enemies, but it's necessary. I was preaching on this a couple uh, months ago in kids' church, and I asked, why do you think Jesus told us to pray for our enemies? And every single kid said the same thing. It was something along the lines of, if I pray for my enemy, then they will change their behavior. That is a childish response. 
We don't pray for people so that they change their behavior. God doesn't need us for that step, okay? He can change their behavior on his own. He prays, he wants us to pray for our enemies because it benefits us. It benefits us. When we pray, it helps guide our heart to healing. Like Pastor Ryan said last week, it's impossible to be bitter towards someone when we pray for them. And the truth is the heart healing, what happens inside our heart when we begin to pray for someone, sometimes that happens on both ends, from both people involved. But most of the time, sometimes it happens just in mine, and that's okay. So we're supposed to love our enemies by praying for them, but why? Why would Jesus ask us to do this? One of the reasons is because it benefits us. It helps lead our heart to healing. But it also reflects our loving God. It says in this passage that even the pagans love people who love them back. When we love our enemies, we are showing people the heart and the love of our great God. And Jesus gave us the perfect example of this. He loved his enemies even when he was dying. 2 Peter 2, 21 through 24 says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And live for what is right. It doesn't say to live in our own perfection. It says, live for what is right. So how do we know what's right? How do we know how to live? We do what Jesus did. We live how Jesus lived. As Christ followers, we can be more like Jesus by reflecting the perfect love of our perfect God. See, it's not your job to be perfect. But... It is our job to point people to a perfect God, to rely on his perfect strength and trust in his perfect plan. This seems impossible. It seems impossible. Put it in real life situations. You have a relationship with someone and they break your trust. They betray you. How are you supposed to love them? The only way this is possible is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The Holy Spirit stirs our hearts. The Holy Spirit helps us to forgive. The Holy Spirit helps us to become more righteous. He helps us to love others the same way that God loves us. Let's be honest. God's love to us is unreasonable. 
He sent his only son to die on the cross for us, for a bunch of sinners. I fall in that category and so do you. He sent his son anyway. And he lavishes undeserved grace and undeserved mercy on us. He loves us perfectly. And through the power and the help of the Holy Spirit, he calls us to love in the same way. As I was studying this week and really thinking about this passage of scripture, I just looked up the word perfect just in the Webster Dictionary. And the third, the third definition really stood out to me. And I thought, that's what God is calling us to do. It says that perfect is faithfully reproducing the original. That is what God is calling us to do, to faithfully reproduce Him in our world, in our situations, in our life, with our family and our friends who have hurt us or will hurt us. It's a constant struggle, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. I wanna read this passage of scripture to you out of the message. It says, You're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend and its unwritten companion. Hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the unlovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. This is Jesus speaking, and it goes back to that full life that he's calling us to. He says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you. Graciously and generously. But this is hard because it's real people who really hurt us. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, and the perfect love of our perfect God. We can love our enemies the way that God has called us to. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes this morning. We're gonna respond to God's word today and this week in a really practical way. I want you to 
Think of someone who you don't like. Think of someone who has hurt you. Think of someone that you have bitterness towards. And I want to challenge you to pray for them every single day this week. And see what God will begin to do in your heart when you give the situation to God and allow Him to heal your heart. Because only He can. And then we can begin to live out this love that God has called us to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for challenging us today. Lord, we want to grow up. We want to be the people that you have called us and destined us to be. But Lord, we know that it's hard and we know we can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own might. And God, I pray that you would help us this week. Bring people to our minds that we need to pray for. Bring people to our minds that we might have bitterness towards, unforgiveness towards. God, give us the strength to love them the way that you love us so that we can shine your love bright, so that we can be different from the rest of the world. Lord, that people would know us by the way we love because of the way you love us. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen.